The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. We should be thankful for the many musicians in this church. God has uh, blessed us richly. It's fun, isn't it, that Danny puts together these different teams each week, and I don't know. I don't know about you, but it's a, it's a moving time for me when we get together and worship. My name is Ben. If you're visiting and didn't know that, welcome. I'd love to chat with you afterwards. We have the lunches. I'll be hanging out, so if you have any questions about the church, uh, come find me. I'd love to sit and chat, hear your story. I'll tell you a little bit of mine. I've put together a kind of sermon that's a little bit different than what we've been doing, and I want to say this. This will be a very difficult sermon for me to preach. I think sometimes a pastor can help the congregation by giving wise counsel that comes from years of experience and wisdom and the tempering of life lived. I think that's often the case. I think that's a good thing. That's probably not what I'm going to do today. I'm not in that umbrella. I come to you as a 39-year-old guy who's in the midst of transformation myself and also going through kind of a tough spot. I think other times the pastor can help the congregation by simply offering togetherness. I am in this with you. And by saying, I have sympathy, and by helping you and I together make a collective sort of pact to not give up to persevere, to stay the course with Jesus. So that's how I approach you today. I wanna be with you, I wanna help walk life with you. I'm committed to this group. I don't have a whole lot of here's what you should do, but I think Jesus does, so I'm gonna try to point us toward that. And uh, hopefully we can learn together. It's tough, life is hard sometimes. What I wanna talk about this morning is freedom. What are free? people like. What are free people like? It is for freedom that I'm set free. Paul tells us that. It is for freedom we were set free. What are free people like? Now, you say, okay, McKinsey just read us two short stories about a miracle. Is that what the big idea of these two short stories is? And I'll say to you, I don't really think so. <laughs> so, but, but it's there. Uh, you're kind of in bondage when you're dead. You can't even really move around. Peter frees her from that. You're kind of in bondage when you're paralyzed. You can't move around too quick. Peter. F- so there is a sense of breaking people free. But I want to look at it a little bit differently. Our text today then is Acts chapter 9, the verses we just read. But our text is also the gospel. And in the gospel, in, in all four gospels, Uh, Peter takes a pretty central role. It's not as central as Jesus, but Peter's a pretty big figure all through the, remember we studied through Mark for like, I don't know, over a year? (laughs) We saw Peter a lot. Uh, Peter's a key key figure, and he enters the scene in Acts again today. And, And as I thought about what we see happening today in Acts, and then I thought about it in the broader context of the whole story, of the Bible, and especially the story we're reading now, I saw a connection to Peter 
And I think that I can connect you to the same thing. And I think that it brings tremendous hope. And I think we need hope today. And I don't mean feel-goodery. I mean real hope. We talked about that a little bit last week. When Jesus told Peter, stand up and come after me, Jesus said to Peter the same thing he said to all the disciples when they were entering into life with him, get up and come with me. Stand up from where you are and enter into something new. So the question we ask is, am I stuck in death or am I moving in life? Where am I at? Am I stuck in death or am I moving in life? Am I anxious and angry and fearful and stressed and isolated, dissatisfied? That's stuck in death. Are you perpetually dissatisfied with the way the world is turning out or your life or the church or something? Or am I active and loving and confident and hopeful and filled with thanks and gratitude, appreciation for life? Where do I come to the table today? Those questions, I think, drive us to wonder about what defines us. Sometimes we think, well, I'm just in this pickle. I'm in a real hard circumstance, which is why I feel the way I do. Over time, I have noticed patterns in the ways that I feel toward things. Patterns of anger, patterns of a short temper, patterns of this. And it actually speaks to me in a way that says, situations will make me flare up in certain ways, but there's something deeper inside of me that is actually holding sway over how I think and act and live. What is your personal cornerstone? What is that foundational thing that all the different pieces of your identity gets organized around? What defines you? More importantly, does that defining reality in your life set you free or does it chain you? What happened to you when you were little that you cannot erase from your mind? I'm speaking to a group of people, <laughs> I think, and statistically, a good majority of us in this room have been seriously abused in one way or another growing up. Sometimes from neglect, sometimes from violence, sexually, verbally, you name it. The majority of us sitting here in this room today think back to very, very harsh and painful memories that we have never been able to kick. And maybe we never can kick them. So what do we do with them? Sometimes we're victims. Sometimes we're guilty. What have you done in your life that you never, ever want to speak about with any human being ever, no matter what? It's absolutely never going to cross my lips. I'll never, ever go back to that dark day or time or night or weekend. I never, ever, ever. It's so dark to me. How do those moments of sin in your life impact your ongoing day to day? We are all victims and we are all guilty. We all have key defining moments in our life. 
and we're linked to them in some way, like a chain. I'm learning more and more each day that these moments and memories in my life hold far more sway than I ever would have liked to imagine, than I ever would have believed. So this is part of my process of growing up in Jesus. If Peter, the great disciple and apostle, also a contributing author to the New Testament, you know, he's a pretty sharp dude. If Peter were here right now, I think that he would have something very interesting to say to us about defining moments in your life. I think that he would teach us something really helpful. One particular defining moment in Peter's life makes this story of Aeneas and of Dorcas totally unfathomable. Now, if you just pull those two stories out and read them, they're interesting and they have value, okay? But when you step back into the broader narrative and you recognize who Peter is, what we see happening in these verses is profound. It's very unlikely. So I want to join Peter on this journey. He's headed to Joppa, all right? But he stops in a smaller trade town of Lydda. I want to look at this scene. Then I want to go into Peter's life, back to the gospel. And then I want to look at the final closing scene with you, okay? So here's Peter. He's headed from Jerusalem toward the Mediterranean Sea. He stops in Lydda. That's about 10 miles east of modern-day Tel Aviv, all right? And it's a and it's a trade route town. Two major roads go through it. It's a trading town. I don't know if that matters, but there it is. Verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling around from place to place, he also came down to the Hagias, the saints who lived in Lydda. And he found there a man named Aeneas who had been confined to a mattress for eight years because he was paralyzed. Now, there's some debate on whether he was confined since he was eight years old or if he had been paralyzed for eight total years. At the end of the day, I don't know that it's that crucial. We just know that he's hosed. <laughs> he's, in a, he's in a real predicament. He can't move around, all right? And he has been that way for some time. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Not I heal you. Notice. Jesus heals you. Stand up and make your own bed. And immediately he stood up. And all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Okay. Notice a few points, and then we'll talk about Peter a little bit. Notice how the story, <laughs> this just makes me crazy in the New Testament. It drives me batty. Why could Peter and not the other Christians do this kind of thing. We see Peter able to heal paralysis by saying it. Other people can't do that, why? Why did he only heal this one guy? I guarantee there's hundreds of other paralyzed and, and lame folks around who, can't, who need healing. Peter just heals the one guy, why? Uh, why are some people in this story called through an inner prompting of the Holy Spirit? Others are called through an angelic vision. Others are called by a simple 
messenger from one town over coming over and saying, hey, God told me to tell you this. I don't know what to, you know. We kind of look at that and we say, well, I've never had an angelic vision or that inner prompting or a messenger come over from Estacada to tell me Jesus wants me to wake up. You know, where, where do I fit? Am I not a Christian? And I think this is the best way to put it. Uh, N.T. Wright, he says, if Luke had wanted to tell people that God keeps people guessing, he couldn't have done it a better way. <laughs> you know, all these details are left out of the story and they make you wonder. And notice this too. It seems to be relatively insignificant when you think about what we've been studying in Acts. We've just talked about like cosmic revolution. <laughs> you know, the apostle Paul, Saul at the time, he's not the apostle yet, but Saul is the champion zealot Jew and he's totally transformed by this huge grandiose vision. It's an encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road. Everything's changing, it's big. Then Luke narrows it down to this little tiny anecdote and he's like, and then there was this one dude in this one little town. That's interesting. I think Luke is teaching us that this is just as significant. There's big, huge, cool things that happen in the life of God and his people. And there's also little tiny things, and we probably shouldn't even call them little or tiny. We should probably call this groundbreaking, earth-shattering, major advance for the kingdom, even though it's relatively small. That you know, Now the guy can walk around and he couldn't before. But this is a big deal. The big stuff is sometimes really small stuff. What you see Peter doing here is what it is all about. So we have all the big stuff of Paul and Saul and the changeover, you know, this massive shift that Jesus starts. We say, okay, that's awesome, it's so cool. But why, what's it all about? This is what it's all about. Coming in, seeing somebody in need, using what God has given you to help them. It's very simple, and its simplicity is ridiculously beautiful. The healing is not a strategic act from a, from a visionary. The healing is just faithfulness. It's a simple, faithful believer passing through a small town. You might say that Peter is receiving God's grace at the exact same time that he's giving it to another person. Sometimes we think I receive God's grace when I agree with facts that people tell me from the Bible. Okay, that probably has some truth to it. I would tell you one of the most formidable ways to receive the grace of God is to actually participate in the grace of God toward others. That's what Peter's doing here. It's cool. It's cool because it's something we can all do. Lest we look at the great ability to heal paralysis and say, well, that's not me. I guess we'll see what's on television. Instead, we look at it and we say, okay, I don't have that. God leaves us guessing sometimes. However, I can certainly extend grace toward others, quite frankly, toward everybody in my life if I so choose. And notice how Peter's actions create the results that the temple was supposed to create. We've had a lot of dialogue in these sermons, well, I guess monologue, it's just me talking at you, but we've had a lot of me talking at you <laughs> related to the temple and how Jesus is taking it apart and moving the mission that the temple was supposed to be into the people. 
we now are the temple of God, right? And so the temple was supposed to do some stuff, and it's exactly what Peter is doing here. Notice that the temple was supposed to bring a blessing, it was supposed to bring hope, and it was supposed to spark faith in others toward God. The temple was supposed to be a place of hope that would, that would lead people in toward faith in God. Well, what happens here? Luke tells us that everyone, I think he's being hyperbolic there a bit, but a great number of people in Sharon and Lydda turned to the Lord. They had faith. What Peter does here sparks faith. This is not the work of Peter the apostle so much as it is the work of Jesus. Remember, Peter says, look at what Jesus has done to you. Peter is accepting Jesus' call. That's what a Christian does. And a call from Jesus is not a call to believe in facts. It's a call to believe who he is, which means you join him in his mission. That's exactly what we see Peter doing here. Life in the kingdom of God is active, and it's precious, it's generous, it's kind, it's empathetic, it blesses, it's peaceful. I see Peter in that mode. Now, here we go. Judging by the fact that Stephen, right, in the previous stories we've read, was just stoned to death in the place where Peter last preached, it seems reasonable to expect Peter to be operating a little bit more uh, quietly. Most of us would say, okay, they're killing people who are just like me. Let's lay low for a little while. Peter's not laying low, though. He's doing things that are bringing attention to him. There's something that he is operating out of. He has a cornerstone, something that is organizing his different... His life gets organized around a principle. Who he is starts at a core basis. And whatever that is, it's not fear. Because if it was, he wouldn't be doing this. Okay? Now, here's where I want to take a... We're going to side note it out to the side here and, and recap what you already know about Peter. But this is cool. I think it helps to add weight to what we see going on here. How would you just, Peter has been pitched to us by Luke so far as a hero at, at some level, right? He's, he's there on the front end. He delivers the keynote address at the great Pentecost, which is a pretty big day. Uh, there he says, I can speak confidently to you. That's, that's a, a strong posture. And he calls them to repentance and he leads them to baptism and worshiping the one true God. He's a hero in this story. Just after his speech, which we read earlier, knowing that he remains under serious threat by law enforcement, he still carries on with the mission. Don't skip past that too quick. He is doing something that is seriously threatening to him, but it matters more than not doing it. So he heads straight into the temple, he performs miracles, he raises this ruckus, he gets arrested, threatened by the courts. We see in Peter a guy who is so all in with following Jesus and living in his way that there is nothing he seems to be afraid of. That's cool, I think it's exciting. And then when you say, this is Peter, you kind of have to do a double, a triple take. <laughs> 
and say, wait a minute, this is Peter. Remember who this is. This is a blue-collar fisherman from Galilee, which is a low-class region, poor country, poor part of the country. Jesus has entered into Peter's life totally unexpectedly and in the most unexpected way. It's unexpected at all that Jesus would enter his life, but he did so in the oddest way, and it totally changes Peter. The invitation from Jesus is always an invitation to action, and so he invited Peter to stand up and come after me. Get up from the way you're currently living and come live with me. Peter did. Now this is where I think I know I am. We're not supposed to covet. I wonder if we are allowed to covet the apostles though. Because I covet Peter because I would love to have a three year trip with Jesus. (laughs) Can you imagine? Even if you don't like Jesus, It'd be cool to hang out with him for three years to figure out what he's really about from his own mouth instead of what everybody says about him, right? It would be awesome. So Peter gets to spend three years with Jesus, and he does come. I believe he comes to think of him as a best friend, genuinely sees him as a, as a true friend, but more. He sees him as the one single human being that all of his people have always waited for, the Messiah. He sees him as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a friend, as a mentor. Peter loves Jesus. He's so important to you. Now think if you're Peter, all right? This person, Jesus, has become so important to you that you've abandoned your way of life at least for three straight years to be with him. You're living life, you're eating meals, you're carrying on long conversations, and as you move with him, you realize more and more how important Your mission together is. This is why Jesus has brought you on. You become a band of brothers. If you're in that, think of your best friends, your closest, most trusted people. This band of of teammates was closer. They're doing illegal stuff together, okay? I don't know if you've ever been involved with illegal things, but when you've got a group of people doing illegal things together, you get close, like you've got each other's back. We have to be able to trust each other because everybody's coming for us. They're a group of disciples that are committing illegal acts every single day. You're tight with them. It's that kind of friendship. And you're with the Messiah. Then things heat up. You've heard that the cops are after you. You need to lay low. They're coming. You hide out in the garden. You're in Gethsemane. But a huge team of law enforcement comes to arrest Jesus. They barge into the garden. Half the crew totally bails. One dude, Mark, we think it's Mark, runs off naked. And we say, Mark, why aren't you wearing any clothes, bro? It must be hot. I don't know. Peter's like, at least I have clothes on. And, And because he's clothed, I think he's more courageous, you know, so he tries to take the head off of one of the Roman guards, misses the head, gets the ear. And Jesus says, no, we're not here to fight our enemy. We're not here to destroy our oppressor. We're here to love him, forgive him, and give our lives over to him. He heals the ear. Now, something changes. Your courage is gone because Jesus doesn't want to fight. Now you see them take Jesus away. Your courage evaporates. Disappointment and confusion come into your mind. You hide in the shadows. You know what's happening, so you go into the city with Jesus. 
Hey, you, you're with Jesus, right? No, 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 no. You must be thinking of somebody else, says Peter. Oh, no. You're thinking to yourself, I've been recognized. I'm all alone. Everybody else took off. I'm really cornered here in a panic. You deny that you even know Jesus. They ask again. You deny again. You've heard a rooster crow in the background. Didn't matter too much to you so far. They ask again. Now the pressure overtakes you, and you swear an oath. You swear. I swear to God. And and you call a curse down upon yourself. May I be cursed if I'm lying. I have no idea who that guy is. None whatsoever. Then you hear the rooster crow the second time. And it hits you like a freight train. All of who you really are, not who you wished you were, not who you'd like to see yourself as, but who you really are, it hits you. You're exposed. You have to stare at it. You hate what you see. You bailed like a baby, like a coward. You failed. You abandoned him. And you denied you ever even knew him. You denied you had any kind of connection to him. You feel a weight beyond measure. And on top of that, your friend, above all friends, is dead. Tell me this. Do you think that this was a moment in Peter's life that had the power to define who he was? Do you think that this, I think you're looking at raw trauma when you look at what is happening to Peter in this moment. On one hand, he is both victim of the most horrendous oppressive system, and on the other hand, he's guilty as one who totally denies having any connection to Jesus. Isn't every one of our sins a denial of our connection to Jesus? Every time you choose to sin, it is you saying, I'm not totally connected to Jesus. At that level, we're with Peter in this spot. I believe this is one of the most horrendous, darkest hours for Peter, and I think it's punctuated with the, with the crowing of the rooster the second time. They say what fires together wires together. I bet every time Peter heard a rooster crow from that day forward, it struck a chord inside of him that was deeply felt. This was real trauma. It had the power to become a cornerstone in Peter's life, a defining moment. To define Peter as one who bailed, as one who failed. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. I'm a person that God can tolerate but can't trust. I bet he replayed that moment over in his head a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times. Do you have moments like that? I have moments like that. I wish to God I could just put an electric something on my head and erase it. These memories, these thoughts, they play over and over. Peter could very easily have become, this is the kind of memory that haunts you. I would expect to see Peter after that moment 
maybe still faithful, maybe still Christian, maybe still kind-hearted, but haunted, a haunted apostle, haunted by his past, governed by what happened and what he went through. But when you and I read Luke's story, we read the gospel, it gets into the book of Acts where we are now, we do not see a picture of a haunted apostle whose entire identity revolves around dark memories, do we? We don't. There's no way he's doing what he's doing if that's the case. His cornerstone is not his past experience, whether victimized or guilty. We see in Peter a free man. He's a threat to evil people. And it doesn't bother him at all. You know, when you're a threat to powerful and evil people, that would normally bother you because they're going to kill you. (laughs) He's not bothered by it. He sees beauty where others cannot. He's smart. And so he's obviously afraid of things. If you're afraid of absolutely nothing, that's more of a lack of intelligence than it is courage. He's smart, so he has fear. But those fears don't control him. Those fears are organized around a different core cornerstone. You see? They're not the cornerstone. He's at peace. He's living with Jesus. He's practicing the way of Christ wherever he goes. When you just read the story about the healing, I think it's cool. I think it's helpful. But when you see that this is Peter, it connects with me much more deeply because what I see in Peter is an actual tangible picture of what we've been talking about a lot, human transformation. He's becoming totally, totally different. Okay, now we're going to finish the next scene, which is in Joppa. And this is, this is just as cool. After Lida, he moves out to the actual coastal town, Joppa. I got to go there last February. It's cool. It's a nice little town on the Mediterranean Sea. There's this little brick building they call Simon the Tanner's house. I don't know if it really was or not, but there it is. He gets to Joppa. Now, verse 36. In Joppa, there's a disciple named Tabitha, which in translation is, is Dorcas. Uh, she is that both of Dorcas is Greek. Uh, Tabitha is Aramaic. They both mean gazelle. So she was a gazelle woman. Um, she was continually doing good deeds and acts of charity. At that time, she became sick and died. When they had washed her body, they placed it in an upstairs room. Because Lida was near Joppa, when the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him and urged him, come to us without delay. You know, this is another one of those questions. Why did Peter need to come and do it? Why couldn't they? God lets us wonder that. So Peter got up, and he went with them, and he arrived, and they brought him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside crying and showing him the tunics and the other clothing that Dorcas had used to make, that she used to make while she was with them. Now, look at verse 40. Peter sent them all outside. Hmm. He knelt down, and he prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, get up. Stand up. And he gave her his hand and he helped her stand up. Then he called the saints, the Hagias, and the widows, and he presented her alive. And this became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 
Same thing. Produced faith. He extends grace and healing. Notice a couple of things here. I want to make a few quick notes, and then we'll close it with Peter. Notice how Peter has a gift or a power, you might say, uh, that he could have publicly shown to everybody and gained a ton of street cred, all right? If you can raise people from the dead, that's going to launch your career quickly. <laughs> you know, get it on YouTube, and that baby's going viral. Peter says to the group, hey, I will do this, but I need a quiet room alone with her. I don't need an audience. I don't need a reporter. We're not trying to capture it to prove it happened. There's something to learn from that move he makes. Verse 39 and 40, he arrives. He sent them all outside. He kneels down. He prays. Luke, I think, wants us to see the humility and the power of Jesus in the same exact moment. Sometimes we think power and we think big, noteworthy, popular. Not so with Jesus. Jesus overturns that. Power, raw power. Power so strong it can raise a human being from death to life is also extremely humble, peaceful, quiet. Not calling attention to self. All of our instincts towards social credibility, what is most important, what people will think of us and like and approve, what will be popular, it all gets overturned by Jesus. And think of the ministry that she had. She's knitting, quilting maybe. I don't know if they were quilting like we do today, but she's knitting, sewing, making blankets, clothing for the poor in her community. Peter, by showing grace to her, extends grace to all that she had ministered to. And I bet you there were hundreds of women just like her. This is the way of Jesus going on. The text literally says she was full of good works and giving alms. And in verse 31, I've mentioned this so far all morning. Now I want to hone in on it. In verse 41, Luke calls her and the other Christians hagias. In verse 34, he calls Aeneas Hagias. And some, probably most of your Bibles, translate that as saints. He calls them saints. This is rare for Luke. He doesn't call Christians saints hardly at all. More, we belong to the way, followers of the way, etc. Here, though, he does call them that, and I think we need to pay attention to it. This word Hagias is pretty far-reaching. It's a big word. Often you'll see it translated as holy. But I think the word holy has gotten a little tarnished. I think it's picked up a little bit of northwest moss as it's rolled through the years. You ask, you ask 10 different Christians what holiness means and you'll get 10 different answers. So it's good for us to study together and recalibrate once in a while. What do we mean by holiness? For most of my life, Holiness was presented to me as, as living differently. And to that end, that's a great way to define it. <laughs> I wasn't, nobody was mistaken when they taught me that holiness means living differently. Where it gets wonky is when we say living differently how. I think it often gets translated into the external world only. I live differently, which means I vote this way, 
or I live differently, which means I don't listen to, I listen to Petra and Michael W. Smith, not Metallica and Pearl Jam. That's, that's how it was when I was a teenager. Christians listen to this kind of music and others listen to this kind. So I would secretly buy that kind I wasn't supposed to listen to and hide it in my ceiling tiles and then listen to it when my parents left the house. You know, because I didn't, I really wanted to listen to other kinds of music besides just Michael W. Smith. We have, we have oftentimes thought of holiness in ways of dressing, words we use or don't use, things we consume or don't consume, and we sort of say, I'm different than the rest of the world, which paraphrase means I'm also better than the rest of the world, and now holiness becomes a sort of erudite judgmentalism. I don't think that's the core of it. Moral perfection is something that should be attractive to us, but it's not the source of our holiness. If we think moral perfection is what makes us holy or different, then our whole life is just moralism. It's trying to figure out who's doing what's right and wrong. But if we step back into the biblical story and we say, what is holiness in the way that God defines it or describes it? It's, the, it's we're different in this way. It was used to describe, first and foremost, the people of Israel. They are holy and different people. How? Why? Their difference lay in the fact that of all the nations, God had chosen them to do his work with him. So this is a difference in identity. Now, who you are, who you believe yourself to be, will influence the way you live but we start with that identity. They were called to be joined to God in doing his work in this world. They failed to do that. They became an obstacle to God's purpose in this world, which was to bless and to save all of the nations, all of the neighbors. Because they stopped doing that, they lost their privileges. Now, we as the church take on that identity. We're with God, he's with us, and we're on mission with him, and he is still doing what he's always been doing. Christians become the people who are different than the rest of the world because first and foremost, we believe God, and what we're doing in this world is very different than what the world is doing. What we're doing is joining God on a mission to bless and serve those around us to show grace and forgiveness and kindness. When I see myself as that's what I'm here for, that changes the rest of my life. The call, this call Jesus gives to every one of us in this room, you belong to me and you're on mission with me. That's the call. That is Peter's cornerstone. All of what Peter sees himself as starts with, I belong to God and I'm on mission with him. Paul talks the same way later on. He says, it's not even really me living, but it's Christ living in me. Most of us here today have something that sits in a cornerstone place in our lives that we need to remove, and it needs to be replaced with Jesus. And that cornerstone thing, the memory, the guilt, the experience that you had, is like a chain, it's chained to you. So we have to break the chain and we have to replace it with Jesus as a cornerstone for our life.
I want to tell you that my life has been stressed and unnecessarily harmed because of an unwillingness to break that chain. Even for me, I didn't even know I needed to. I think sometimes we don't even realize how much our past experiences are influencing our day-to-day. We need to, in order to break that chain, we need to afiemi. Afiemi is the Greek word we translate into forgive. Afiemi means to let go of. You can't put Jesus as the cornerstone of your life until you let go of the previous one, okay? There's a woman named Nadia Bowles Weber. She put out a two-minute video about forgiveness at some time recently. It's fascinating, and I'm going to read it to you word for word because it so captures the thought here. I want to read this, make another minute's worth of comments, closing, and then we'll pray. Then we'll go eat lunch. But listen to this. She's a, she's a pastor who founded the church where she leads. She put this out, and it's about forgiveness, and here's what she says. I really believe that when someone does us harm, we are connected to that mistreatment like a chain. Because forgiveness is nothing less than an act of fidelity to an evil combating campaign. Notice what she's saying. Forgiveness is you joining a campaign of God to fight evil. So forgiveness is not an act of niceness. It's not being a doormat. It's really more badass than that. Maybe retaliation or holding on to anger about the harm done to me actually doesn't combat evil at all. Maybe it feeds it. Because in the end, if we're not careful, we can actually absorb the worst of our enemy and on some level even start to become them. So what if forgiveness, rather than being a pansy way of saying, it's okay, it's okay, is actually a way of wielding bolt cutters and snapping the chains that link us to those past experiences. It's like it is saying, what you did was so not okay that I refuse to be connected to it anymore. Forgiveness is about being a freedom fighter. Free people are dangerous people. Free people are not controlled by the past. Free people laugh more than others. Free people see beauty where others do not. Free people are not easily offended. Free people are willing to speak truth to stupid. There really is a light that shines in the darkness, and that darkness cannot and will not and shall not overcome it. That's pretty good. Cutting the chains of those things that have taken the wrong place in our life. May you and I together as a community learn to forgive those who sin against us as we live in the forgiveness that Jesus gives to us. 
May we believe him when he calls us into his family and he says, I love you. I respect you. And I trust you to lead my church. Can you imagine what Peter felt when he approached Jesus after the crucifixion? The fear he had? Jesus did not ignore him, and Jesus did not kill him. And that would be what you might expect. He did neither. Instead, he says, hey, we might expect him to say, hey, look, Peter, bro, <laughs> I love you, but you have fallen from grace, son. You have, you have committed a sin that means you can't be in leadership anymore. We have to remove you from leadership now that you've done that. That's what Peter would expect. And instead, he says, hey, Peter, I want you to be in charge of feeding my sheep. I trust you. That's what we see him doing with Aeneas. It's what we see him doing with Dorcas. Setting people free. This is what I desire for each one of you. That you would be free. Not that Peter would feed you. But that you and I and us would join together and follow Peter's example. Jesus came to him and he said, stand up and follow me. Peter came to Aeneas and Dorcas and he said, stand up. Jesus makes this standing up possible. Do it. Join me. Join him. What used to define you no longer does because Jesus came. Jesus cut those chains and now he is the reality around which all the rest of your life forms. All of the different pieces that make you who you are revolve around Jesus as the core principle in your life. And that changes everything. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Help us to become chain breakers. Help us to organize all of the pieces of our identity, all of the things that we have learned, our experiences, all of the things that help us make sense of life. Help us to see those things through your eyes with you as our cornerstone. Father, I pray that you would teach us to forgive each day and help us to show mercy and grace, certainly to our neighbor, but God, help us to show mercy and grace toward ourselves. You show us grace. Help us to follow you in that. Please, Holy Spirit, with the same exact power that raised Dorcas from the dead, that healed Aeneas's paralysis, with that same power, the same power that lifted Jesus from the grave. I ask that you would set us free. Make us a free people that have an insatiable love for you and for our neighbor. We need you today, and I say on behalf of this church, we are yours and we love you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.